Okay, the book of Ruth, if you want to turn there in your Bible, situated right between Judges to the left and First and Second Samuel to the right, the book of Ruth, a short book of the Bible. If you haven't read through it, I would encourage you. Uh, because it's only four chapters as we go through it, and we'll probably take maybe the next few weeks to go through it at a little slower pace to glean some of the lessons in here. Certainly some really uh, wonderful truths that God's weaved throughout the book of Ruth and even a few major themes that are really beautiful, but it just always helpful with a book of the Bible if you can read straight through it, especially this because it's a historical narrative, uh, the story that's given here. But uh, the book of Ruth, one of two books we have in the Bible that are actually... Uh, named uh, after a woman, of course. The book of Esther is the other book that we have a little bit further along, and uh, Ruth seems to be one of the prominent figures here. And I would just say a few things at the front side of the book of Ruth. That the story that's given to us here of uh, Ruth and her ultimate marriage and connection to Boaz and what God does, the result of that, uh, this is a story of redemption and a story of grace, and as we go through it together, you'll see the redemptive work of God and how God is a God of restoration, uh, that he's a God of grace and a God of sovereignty who intervenes on our behalf to show mercy uh, and at times to spare us uh, from what could ultimately come upon us. And we'll see as we look at this together how Boaz becomes this very beautiful picture uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ, our kinsman redeemer, someone who, if you would, uh, marries us and takes us to himself spiritually to spare us from the calamity and the things that could come upon us and how Jesus ultimately provides for us all that we need for uh, not only abundance in this life, but for eternal life. And, and as you read through it uh, on your own, and, and we'll hopefully point out some of these things, it's a very beautiful typology of how Ruth becomes a picture of you and I, the church, and Boaz becomes a picture of our Lord Jesus. Uh, it's also a beautiful story and uh, illustration of God's sovereignty and God's sovereignty control over all things. In fact, in this book, certainly one of the predominant themes is the, what we would call the providence of God. Now, uh, I'm just going to assume that uh, most of us know perhaps what providence means, but if not, just for sake of refresher or your acquaintance, providence basically is that word that we use to describe how God sees ahead into the future. Not just that he sees ahead into the future, proviso, that's the idea there of providence or provision when we get those terms. Uh, but God, because the Bible says, not only knows the end from the beginning, the Bible actually says that he is the beginning and the end. So God spans the beginning and he doesn't just know the beginning and end. He spans all of time and eternity. So because of that, you and I, we live in this time continuum. We often forget that the wonderful thing is that we serve a God who takes care of us and who has providence and therefore because he knows a week from now, a month from now, a year from now, six years from now, ten years from now, works on our behalf and is able to coordinate circumstances and events and situations and people and connections and work in such a way by his providence, seeing the future that he works in situations to prepare in advance not only us 
but other individuals and even situations before we arrive to them so that they ultimately work together for his purposes and for his ultimate good for our lives. So what an awesome thing to think of how God prepares what's ahead, maybe what's needed. He works in such a way now, already knowing what's coming next week, what's coming next month, and even some of the things that he's doing in your life presently. You don't see it now. But ultimately, as time unfolds, and if you've walked with the Lord for any period of time, sometimes we then can kind of look back in the rearview mirror and say, oh my goodness. I mean, I don't know about you, but there are times where I now look back in my life and I realize, how many different dots did God have to connect to put that and that and this person and this person and that and that all together so that this would come to pass on this day? And if that didn't happen all the way back then, you know, not even just the events and the connections and the pieces, but even at times I know for myself, even the things God had to do like in my heart that, that I wouldn't have been ready to receive or maybe respond rightly at certain times if God didn't work the ways that he did. So we see this weave throughout the book of Ruth, this theme of God's providence, how he was working things in advance to prepare things to come together. And you'll see that theme throughout this book. And one other thing I would say at the onset of this book as well, and certainly for those of you uh, who are single, uh, for those of you who are young people, for those of you who have young people, whether it's your children you're still raising, uh, the book of Ruth is a biblical picture of a love story between a man and a woman there's probably one of this is probably one of the best examples we have in the word of god of biblical love and you can study this book from that perspective if you want to learn you know what what should a woman be and and what should i be looking for if you're a woman perhaps in a man well i think a lot of what boaz represents is a good illustration of that and from the other side of that if you're a man you know what should you be what should your roles and responsibilities be uh, as a man as well as what kind of a woman and nature and character traits should you be looking for well Ruth becomes a beautiful picture of that and their relationship the love relationship they have what it's built upon what it's not built upon the way that they interact with one another and the way that they relate to one another, uh, I think it is a fantastic love story for our young people, for our singles to acquaint themselves with because th this is God's paradigm in a lot of ways. You know, sometimes people will ask, well, well where, you know, where's the chapter on dating in the Bible? I mean, what should you do and shouldn't you do and this and that? Well, uh, if there were a spot, certainly we have some instruction, but I think this is a really great story. This is a spirit-inspired love story and this certainly is a beautiful narrative given of what biblical love between a man and a woman ultimately should be. So uh, let's jump in together. Notice in chapter 1, verse 1, it tells us that it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled. So uh, that kind of sets the context for a background to the book. Uh, everything that we've been talking about, we just studied through the book of Judges together. Uh, in fact, uh, the last verse of the book of Judges, which is probably just on the prior page to your left, tells us really the predominant uh, way things were in that time. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And we saw all throughout the book of Judges the conditions morally and spiritually in the nation of Israel at this time. I mean, it was a time of great darkness, 
of moral decline, uh, of rampant sin. People were living in cycles uh, as the nation. They would continue to go back into idolatry and then God would allow them to struggle under the weight of their own poor decisions. And then when they would become miserable enough, they would cry out to God and God would mercifully raise up one of these judges or deliverers who would come and set them free. But then so often there'd be a season where they'd serve the Lord and then that cycle would just repeat itself and they would return back to their old ways again and turn away from the Lord. But it was a time when there was no uh, real leadership in the nation and so therefore everyone was just choosing what they assumed was right in their own eyes. They were establishing their own standards for morality, much like today, where basically, hey, what I say is right is right and what I say is wrong is wrong and everything's uh, basically up to the individual. There's, there's no absolutes and so forth. And uh, this was the time. It was a very dark time in Israel's history and that's the setting of the book of Ruth. And that's important. And I think the Holy Spirit points that out for us because what God wants us to know is that at a time in the nation when things were very dark when there was a lot of ungodliness when evil was running rampant when people had no reverence and respect for god in many different ways when there was a lot of suffering just a dark immoral time when the nation was declining god was still working and there were ways that god was still working and there were pockets of individuals and people who still loved the lord and the Lord still had his remnant even in the midst of that. And this story took place, which is a beautiful demonstration of God's work to show us that even when it looks like God's not working, he is still working. And he's accomplishing things a lot of times in ways that we don't perhaps see until ultimately maybe we get another step or two down the road. So these things came to pass. That's the context of the historical setting, that 350 or so year period that we studied during the book of Judges in the last uh, Bible book we went through. It tells us that during that time, it says, verse 1, notice there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So we're told, here's the, the, the setting of what begins the circumstances that unfold the book of Ruth as it goes along, that during this time, it says, in the area of the land of Israel, a famine came upon the land. Now, let me just for sake of refreshment, if you're a note taker, jot down Deuteronomy 11, verses 10 through 17. And just listen, if not, if nothing else, because this is important, because when we read a famine, it's important to acquaint ourselves again with what God said about their time in the land that God brought them into, the promised land. Deuteronomy 11 says this, for the land, God says, which you go to possess is not like the land of Egypt from which you've come, where you sowed your seed and watered it by foot as a vegetable garden. But the land which you cross over to possess, the land of Canaan or Israel, where they would be, is a land of hills and valleys which drinks water from the rain of heaven. In other words, God said, you're not going to have to irrigate your land and work hard like you did with the Nile when you were slaves in Egypt. The land I'm bringing you to is a land flowing with milk and honey, a land that will be fruitful and plentiful. It'll have abundance of rain. And the reason why is because God said, I'll make sure it's adequately watered because I'm the God of creation and I'll make sure that land is cared for. So he said it will drink the rain of heaven, a land for which the Lord your God cares. The eyes of the Lord your God are always on it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. 
And it shall be that if you earnestly obey my commandments, which I command you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and soul, then I will give you, notice, the rain for your land in its season, the early and latter rain that you may gather in your grain, your new wine and your oil. And I will send grass in your fields for your livestock that you may eat and be filled. That's the opposite of a famine. Take heed to yourselves, God says, lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside to serve other gods and worship them, lest the Lord's anger be aroused against you and he shut up the heavens so that there be no rain and the land yield no produce and you perish quickly from the good land the Lord your God is giving you, indicating that God would withdraw the rains needed and the land would not produce which would produce what's described here, a famine in the land. So it is very likely that the reason the land at this time in Israel is suffering under a famine, given this is the time of the book of Judges, is the direct result of a discipline of God against his people for their rebellion against him. And again, God trying to awaken them. So it could be that this is a direct connection to that. But we can't be certain, but the scripture is very clear that God said this would be one of the consequences when his people would turn away from him to awaken them, to get their attention, whether he would let their enemies overthrow them and conquer them and rule over them, or at times he would withhold the reins and there would become a difficult way of survival. Again, remember, this was an agrarian culture, an agrarian society. So to not have rain and not have a famine, another way of saying that there was a famine in the land, that's a very simple way of saying in that day and age, a crisis struck. A tragedy struck. I mean, listen, we can do without certain things, but when there starts to be no food, all of a sudden you start realizing what really matters and what really doesn't. And a famine in land means there's not enough food to survive. You're struggling to feed yourself. You're struggling to feed your family. This is bare bones, basic necessity, and this is a real tragedy a problem has struck even as sometimes tragedies and problems strike in our lives but this famine has now come to the land and it says the result of that this man takes his family and he went and dwelt it says in the country of moab he and his wife and his two sons and it says the name of the man was Elimelech, which basically means God is king. Interesting, some of the names as they roll out in this book are important to take note of. And the name of his wife was Naomi. Now remember her name because her name means pleasantness. We'll see at the end of the chapter why that's important. So that was her name, what it meant. And the names of the two sons that they had were Malon and Chilion, which basically mean sickly, and the other one means pining or wasting away or, or failing. So it could be that they had a health condition that happened at birth or uh, kind of interesting names for the two sons. And they were Ephrathites, it says, of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went, as verse one told us, to the country of Moab as a family and they remained there. Now, what the Bible records is this famine comes upon the land. We don't know how long they were under the famine, what exactly is going on, but no doubt. This is becoming stressful. This is becoming difficult. It's becoming hard. There's a lack. Uh, they're probably doing everything they can to sustain themselves, to survive. 
Uh, we don't have all the details, but what we are told is this man Elimelech ultimately makes the decision on behalf of his family, whether it was his wife's suggestion, his idea, a cooperative decision. He makes a decision, it says, and he took his family, his wife and his two sons, and went to the land of Moab to go and dwell there. Now, the land of Moab, remember, is basically on the eastern side of the Jordan River, and it's able to be seen from this area of Bethlehem. So as he's watching the ground around him get dry and dusty and there's no green and there's no moisture, he's probably looking across and, and technically seeing the grass is greener on the other side over there. And he's seeing the hills of Moab. I've, I've been there once to Israel and you can see right across that area there and you can actually see this area. So he probably can visually see, hey, we're struggling here. There's no food here. I'm struggling to provide for my family. We have need. And he makes the decision to go over to the area of Moab with his family. Now, let me just say this. And we can't be dogmatic. Some commentators really beat up on Elimelech here and really give the guy a, a hard time that he makes the choice to take his family over uh, to Moab during the time of the famine, that it was this horrible choice and sinful and you know wrong. And, and, and listen, perhaps it was. Uh, we can't, maybe it was an unwise decision here for Elimelech to leave Bethlehem, to leave Israel, the land of Canaan, and to depart from where God had called them to be and where God had established them to be and to take them over to not only the eastern side of the Jordan, which remember, there were some Jews on the eastern side of the Jordan. They could have gone over to the other side of the Jordan and stood with some of the two and a half tribes of Israel that were on the eastern side, but for whatever reason... He chooses to go to Moab, and keep in mind, remember, Moab was a pagan culture. They worshipped the god Chemosh. And more than that, the Moabite people, let me remind you again, Deuteronomy 23, verses 3 and 6, this is what God told Israel in regards to the people of Moab. It says, an Ammonite or a Moabite, shall not enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever, because he did not meet you with bread and water on the road when you came out of Egypt, because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. Nevertheless, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned that curse into a blessing for you. Because the Lord your God loves you. And then God said, verse 6, You shall not seek their peace nor their prosperity all your days forever. So those are pretty strong words from the Lord to the Jewish people regarding how they were to relate to the people of Moab. Those were God's instructions. God reminds them, listen, they, they were cruel to you when you came out of Egypt. They also, he says, were the ones who hired out Balaam, who tried to curse the people of God, and then ultimately, uh, as the result of those people, they then ultimately, the Moabite women, were the ones who seduced the Jewish men, the Israelites, to have sexual relationship with them, but then brought a curse upon them anyway when the situation with Balaam didn't work. So God says, listen, remember what they've done. They're not welcome in the assembly of the Lord. I don't want them mingling among my people because of the history and the cruel things they've done to you and how they'll be a snare to you spiritually. And God says, you shall not seek their peace or their prosperity either. 
So it's very unusual that Elimelech, of all places, chooses to go over to Moab. So it does seem somewhat questionable if you think about why of all places does he choose to go to Moab? And, and again, it does give some credence. I think there's some value to questioning that maybe this decision when the famine came to go over and try and find provision and what you were searching for in the land of Moab in enemy territory really probably wasn't maybe a very wise decision. And when you look at what happens as he goes there, they end up spending 10 years there. Nothing happens there really other than death and problems. Uh, ultimately, God, as I said, he redeems the situation as Ruth comes back. God does something redemptive out of what happens. And even when we make bad decisions, praise the Lord that he's able to redeem those things ultimately. But perhaps it would have been more wise for Elimelech to keep his family where he was, even though there was struggle and famine and lack, because that was where God called him to be. That was where God had, had established them and had intended for them to be there in the land of Israel. In the land of Israel was where God said he would bless his people. That was the place where God had called them to be. Psalm 37 verse 3 says, trust in the Lord and do good, dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Perhaps that would have been a word of wisdom for Elimelech because he's much like you and I. A famine happens, a crisis, a tragedy, he's struggling and he, and he, he begins to take matters and say, I got to do something logical. I got to do something responsible. And like you and I, when pressure comes upon us, sometimes we are prone to respond the same way. We just start taking matters into our own hands. And sometimes maybe instead of trusting the Lord and dwelling in the land and just trusting and feeding upon the faithfulness of the Lord and letting God show up and God do what he needs to do, we sometimes start jumping to our own conclusions. We start trying to fix and resolve our own problems. And sometimes we end up stepping outside of the will of the Lord because we start going, trying to search for fixes and resolutions. Again, well, I mean, I mean, I mean, I'm still single. And I, I mean, I, I mean, look at me. I'm, I mean, I'm 21 years old now. I mean, and so I, I guess, I mean, I guess I better do something. I mean, there's a famine in the dating file here. And so then people go outside of God's parameters searching for a relationship and they enter into something outside of God's will and God's plan that's not really for them because they saw a lack and a deficiency and an impatience. Instead of just trusting the Lord and waiting on his faithfulness, they do that. Or we can make this mistake even as well with, with needs or finances. I know this is an area I can be very prone to with my personality and being a father and a husband. Hey, there's a need. Well, okay, then uh, there's a need. Then I've got to take it in my hands and resolve this and go fix it. And then sometimes we can find ourselves going off and down paths that ultimately pull us away from maybe what God really wants for us and what we're supposed to be engaged in or remaining where God wants us to be. And sometimes we flee and we go off somewhere else like Abraham. He made the same mistake. When there was a famine in the land, he went down to Egypt instead of staying where God called him to be and just trusting God to do what God wanted him to do. So we have to be careful of this because ultimately they go there, and as, as we'll see, not much good happens. I mean, a lot of problematic things, really problems just get magnified as a result of going to Moab. So they go there strictly, it seems, for material purposes. We've got to be careful of letting ourselves be guided strictly by material purposes. Uh, we have to ask, well, yeah, that may resolve a material need or a physical need, but is that what God's will is for me? 
Is that what God's solution or leading is for my life? And it seems that perhaps that was the thing that was neglected and they just based their decision on the physical and the material alone. So they go there and it says they remain there in the area of Moab. And then watch what happens. Verse three, it says, then Elimelech, Naomi's husband died and she was left and her two sons. So they go there and we don't know how long, but sometime after going there, not only does he take them to a foreign country, are they in a pagan land? They're outside of the assembly of God, the help of God's people, the support. They're outside of the land that God says, I'll bless you here in this land. He takes them outside of that. Now on top of that, now he dies and drops out of the scene. Now she's left there as a widow, as a woman with two sons to be responsible for. So now things didn't get better. They just got even worse. Now she's coping with the grief of losing a husband, with the hardship of of now having to wonder all the more, how are we going to provide? How are we going to sustain ourselves here? We have no relatives, no family, no friends. There's nobody we know here in this land where we're at. And I want to say this as we go through the book of Ruth. Always remember this too, because it's not perhaps as typical in our culture today in modern society. But in that culture... In that ancient culture, we have to remember that marriage was security for a woman. A lot of a woman's security was tied up in her having a husband. And to not have a husband, to be a widow or to be single, that was not only just lonely, it was very risky for survival. A lot of a woman's security was based very strongly in having a spouse. I guess we, we don't perhaps relate to that today, but in this culture, this, this was vitally important for them. So now she has no spouse. She has her two sons. She's grieving the loss of her husband, trying to figure out as she's grieving how to handle this next hardship. Now we just lost dad. What do we do now? Well, verse four says, now they, the two sons, took wives of the women of Moab. The name of one was Orpah and the name of the other was Ruth. And they dwelt there, ultimately, it says, for 10 years. So they ended up being there for quite an extended amount of time. For 10 years, they end up being in the land. So take notice, dad dies. They struggle to perhaps get on their feet a little bit. And you know, then at least the two sons, she's able to perhaps in, encourage them. They, they find spouses here at this point, And maybe that brings a little bit of joy back into mom's heart a little bit. But it's interesting, when her husband dies, she doesn't return back home. It says here that now she finds sons there. She kind of settles in there. She, she, they find wives for the sons there. And for 10 years, they're still dwelling in the land of Moab. And look what happens, verse 5. Then both Malon and Chilion also died. I think the emphasis there being upon then and also. If it weren't bad enough. Then also her two sons died. So the woman, imagine this, survived her two sons and her husband. So now she's a widow. And then add on to that, now she just lost her only two children. And no parent likes to deal with the death of their child because that is the most out of order and abnormal type of death that a human being can experience. No one ever, ever expects to bury their own children. That's why it's the hardest death statistically to grieve because we always expect that our children will bury us. It just seems to be the natural 
order of life because of age. So we just expect our children. So when a parent is faced to come to grips with the reality that their child has died before them, that's an extremely painful process. And now she has to do this not once, but twice. And she doesn't even have her husband as a support system to walk through this with her. She's already widowed and been a single mom. And now she's dealing with the death of her two sons. And she has these two Moabite daughter-in-laws. Well, verse 6 says, Then she arose with her daughter-in-laws that she might return from the country of Moab. That Because she had heard, notice, while in the country of Moab, that the Lord had visited his people. So it seems, again, that God had retracted. That's why the famine came, because of their sinful disobedience to God. But now God showed mercy to his people, a time of grace and visitation of the Lord came and the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. Therefore, she went out from the place where she was and her two daughter-in-laws with her and they went on the way, notice, to return to the land of Judah, going back to the place where she originally was with the Lord. You know, some see this as a, as, as a form of repentance that finally she came to a place to say, I have, what am I doing? I have got to get home. This has been hard being here. And there's been nothing, I mean, think about it. She went from that land. They had no food. They were struggling. She goes to the land and all that happens in the land is three funerals. Three funerals. And now here she is with these two Moabite daughters and she gets word now after 10 long years in the land, she hears somehow, hey, Yahweh God has been gracious to his people once again. He's heard their prayers and he has visited his people and given them bread. There's again rain and the lands are producing and, and once again the crops are coming in and she realizes, hey, there is food and, and I need to get back home. What am I doing here? I'm tired of being here. And she now begins her journey to head back to her homeland to be back with the people of God again that she's been away from for 10 long years, going back with the grief in her heart and the experiences of a decade. So they're now returning to the land of Judah. The daughter-in-laws are going with her. And verse 8 says that Naomi said to her two daughter-in-laws, Go, return each to her own mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt kindly with the dead and with me. And the Lord grant, she prays, that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. So she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. So at this point, notice what happens. Naomi graciously, as an older woman, realizing her two daughter-in-laws are, are still young, they're still at a marriable age and, and they haven't had any children yet. That's one of the things we see as well here that her two sons, they never produced any heirs or offspring, which also means that now Naomi's family line or actually Elimelech's family line, it, it's going to just disappear because he's died. The two sons have now died without producing any children. And so she turns to her two daughter-in-laws trying to have mercy upon them to having grace upon them. And she says, listen, girls, she says, why, why follow me back? She says, you've been gracious. You've been kind to me. And she says, may the Lord be kind to you and bless you. She says, return back home and, and may the Lord grant you to find another man, to find a husband and, and to be able to have a family and to settle in and to experience the things that I once did but have been taken away from me. And you know, it's, isn't it amazing how... 
you know, you talk to people who perhaps are a few years down the road or perhaps a, a woman who's widowed and, and were lost and, and the perspective of, look, you don't know what I missed that I had. You still have a chance to experience this. Don't devalue. So she's kind of trying to say, listen, you don't have to. There's nothing good with coming with me. There's nothing that's going to come out of that. She's, she's wanting their happiness, trying to be gracious. So they have this emotional experience, it says, where they're hugging and weeping and no doubt struggling through this, realizing that she's going to depart now back over to the land of Israel. And verse 10 says that they said to her, to Naomi, surely we will return with you to your people so they're trying to be devoted no no mom again remember this is their bonds have formed here this is their mother-in-law if the son's married at a, a younger age i mean they could have been daughter-in-laws for five years seven years i mean there's bonds here and they say no no mom you i mean you've already lost dad and now you've lost both the boys and all we have is each other and we're family and no we, we want to come back with you we want to help take care of you kind of that noble heart of wanting to be committed and naomi said to them verse 11 being insistent turn back she says my daughters why will you go with me are there still sons in my womb that is potential for me to still have sons? I'm beyond childbearing, she's saying, that they may be your husband's replacement for my two sons who've already died. Turn back, my daughter, she says, verse 12, go, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I should say I should have hope, if I should have a husband tonight, she says, <laughs> and should bear sons, would you wait for them till they're grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? So she says, listen, I'm way beyond the age of the flower of my youth. And she says, even if I met a husband tonight and right away we conceived and we had a child, she says, I mean, be realistic, she's saying. Are you going to wait around until they're of a marriable age where you can marry another one of my sons, she says, so that we can stay family and you can be my daughter-in-laws and that you could raise up an heir. She says, that's just not, not realistic. Are you going to wait for the next 18 or 20 years just to see even if I could produce another child for you to marry? She says, well, why would you do that? Why would you wait till they were grown? Would you be able, she says, just thinking realistically to restrain yourselves from having a husband? Verse 13, she says, No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So notice the heart of Naomi. I mean, what, that's certainly a, a very other-centered attitude that she's saying, Listen, I don't want to be selfish just because I'm lonely. I don't want you to have to cater to me. She says, I want what's best for you. I want you to be experienced the, the best. And she says, it, it grieves me for you. My heart breaks for you. I appreciate that you want to stay with me. That blesses me, she says. But, but I don't want to be selfish and, and have you remain with me and miss the opportunity to experience marriage and having your own children and the joys of what that brings to a woman's life. She says, it grieves me. It hurts my heart for your sakes. And notice she says that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So what does she feel like? She feels like that God's hand is against her. You know, and sadly, sometimes when we go through hardships and tragedies and losses, sometimes that's what kind of mindset we start to feel like that. Sometimes when we go through a tragedy or a crisis, and this woman certainly, would you agree? 
I mean, they went through the famine together. They traveled to a foreign country together. They probably struggled to get by there knowing no one in Moab and trying to do what they could to establish themselves, live there for 10 years, and then buries her husband, buries a child, thinking I never... And then buries the second child? I mean, can you imagine the depths of grief and hardship and crisis? Again, I'm not diminishing any hardship or crisis you or anyone perhaps has ever gone through, but that's quite a weight of crisis and hardship in a span of 10 years that this woman has gone through, the disappointments and the pain. And look, you can see her words. She says, the hand of the Lord has gone out. She feels like that God's hand is, is against her and and just naturally feeling like that. It doesn't mean that that's the case, but that was her normal feeling. It was a, just a natural thing. Ultimately, she's going to see that there's nothing further from the truth. God's hand is not against her. It seems that way, but just because it seems that way and just because it feels that way, like I said before on a Sunday morning a few weeks ago, sometimes our feelings may be very real. And the feelings are real and the thoughts are real. But just because the feelings and the thoughts are real doesn't mean that they're true. Doesn't mean that they're right. And we see this throughout the Bible. There are times where people feel greatly depressed, discouraged, downcast, anxious and fearful and worried and and as if somehow everything is against them and that even God is against them. And that may be a real feeling, but listen, don't live by feelings. You live by faith you live by the truth. But again, just see the transparency here. She says, I'm grieving for you. Please return. She, again, she's, she's just trying to release them. She's giving them the freedom to have their own choice. She's saying, I, I want to release you. Please don't feel obligated to care for me as your elderly mother-in-law. I want to release you to be able to experience your own desires. And verse 14 says, then they lifted up their voices and they wept again. A lot of crying going on. And Orpah, it says, kissed her mother-in-law. Notice the difference. Here's now the contrast. But Ruth clung to her. Orpah kissed her. The idea is saying, you know what? Thank you, mom. I so appreciate that. And, and this breaks my heart. But you know what? I'm going to take your, your, your advice. I'm going to take this opportunity. Thank you for releasing me. I, I miss you. And again, so she's a little more willing to, when she has the opportunity to release herself from the commitment and to return back to her own people again. But it says that Ruth, notice she's of a different temperament. And it says she clung to her mother-in-law. Her heart was different. Ruth's heart was devoted. And in her mind, it was, look, this is not a time to be selfish. This is not a time to think about myself. This, I mean, or, you know, and to, to what I want. What I, this, this is an occasion to rise up and to, to do what's sacrificial here, to do what's helpful here. So she clings to her mother-in-law in this act of devotion. And again, notice how insistent. I mean, Naomi says to her again, to Ruth, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Now, that wasn't a good thing because they worship the god Chemosh. But again, Naomi's trying to be so merciful to release her. This is the third time now. Return after your sister-in-law. She's saying, Ruth, you don't have to do this. Ruth, you don't have to sacrifice your whole future. Ruth, you don't have to stay committed to me. Ruth, you don't have to be willing to abandon everything you know. This is where you grow up. I mean, I'm going to go to a land that you've never been to before. 
and, and we have a different God there that we worship and things are going to be different. And so she's, again, trying to be insistent. And then verse 16 comes this beautiful declaration of commitment and emotion and loyalty. I mean, the vows here of commitment that come forth showing the devotion and the dedication of Ruth. I mean, just some of the most beautiful words of such that we find in the scripture. Look what Ruth says to her, which kind of just seals the deal that she's not going anywhere and staying with her. Ruth said, verse 16, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. He then says, for wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Notice, and your God shall be my God. Your God shall be my God. Where you die, that's commitment. That's called till death do us part. Where you die, I will die there and there I will be buried. The Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts you and me. That's called devotion. That's called commitment and loyalty. Notice at the end there in verse 17, she, she basically calls the Lord Yahweh God. She uses the name of Yahweh God. She doesn't just say your God shall be my God, but she says the Lord do so to me. I'm, I'm holding myself accountable to Yahweh God, which shows at this point she's exercising her faith and embracing the God of Israel. She had no doubt heard about the God of Israel having been married into this family and she now makes her own declaration of faith exercising her vow of commitment to her mother-in-law but more than that exercising her commitment to the Lord. She says the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me. I'm holding myself accountable to God and may God hold me to account for this commitment and she makes this incredible now declaration of loyalty to her mother-in-law and I tell you you look at the, the life of Ruth here uh, and let me just say in regards to her character, what she exemplifies, even in the statement she's making there and in what you see in the narrative so far. I mean, Ruth exemplifies a, a, a temperament, a character of commitment, of someone who knows how to be devoted, uh, of, of a woman who understands self-denial. I mean, you want to talk about a woman who is completely unselfish as a young woman? I mean, in her mind, she's thinking, I'm giving up potentially ever being married. I'm willing to leave my family, my comfort zones, everything that I know. And she's basically saying, I'm willing to sacrifice. I'm willing to follow you and be with you and stay with you as my mother-in-law till the day that I die and to take care of you. That is of a higher importance to me to honor you as, as my mother-in-law because your sons aren't here to honor you. So I take that as my calling, she's basically saying. I'm willing to sacrifice my life to fulfill this service, to care for you, to honor you as my mother. I mean, you talk about an exercise of faith, her willingness to trust the Lord with her life. She demonstrates a, a character of humility as she puts herself under basically the authority of her mother-in-law. She says, wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. In other words, I'm choosing to submit to wherever you want to go and whatever you want to do, I'm choosing to submit myself to you and to your leadership for the rest of my life. She demonstrates submission to the will of the Lord and a willingness to let go of all her past and her comfort 
to embrace a new life and a future. I mean, just the, the nature, the traits, the character of that woman thus far already are incredible and exemplary. So verse 18 says, when she saw that she was determined to go with her, Naomi then stopped speaking to her. And you know, I think there's, that shows you some great wisdom of this elderly woman, Naomi, at this point. When she saw that someone was determined, I mean, she tried three times to persuade her otherwise. At a certain point, she just basically resolved in her heart, you know what? The will of the Lord be done. And I think there's a great lesson of wisdom because sometimes we try and persuade someone, persuade, and even sometimes it's for their best interest and we're trying to persuade them. And No, you should do this. You should really do this. You should do this. And after a certain point, when she saw her heart, she ultimately saw, look, she's made up her mind. She's made a decision. I need to honor her free will. She's decided to do this. And if that's what you've determined, she says, I'll stop speaking. The Bible says there's a time to speak and then there's a time to be silent. Uh, and here she exercises, okay, the will of the Lord be done. Verse 19, let's just finish up the first chapter tonight. It says, now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. So they arrived back to her hometown. And it happened when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city was excited because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Now keep in mind, it's, it's been 10 years. But people recognize her, she comes back. But 10 years later, She's also had the effect of 10 years of life, and not just life, but hard life. And, and, and that has an effect. I mean, sometimes perhaps you've seen before, I know have, sometimes you see certain individuals and, and, and you remember, man, well, life's really worn on them. And especially when somebody's been through some really hard things and some difficult tragedies or they've lived really hard. So they say, oh my goodness, the the whole town, notice. Because again, it would be like a small town rather than a city, Bethlehem, the population of that day. They were excited, celebrating. Oh my goodness, is this Naomi? Is this Naomi? But she said to them, verse 20, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me so uh, again this goes back to the concept i said earlier of the importance of names they said is this naomi in hebrew tongue is this pleasantness that was her name oh pleasantness is home pleasantness oh goodness 10 years is this and she says don't call me pleasantness call me mara which means bitterness she said my life is no longer about pleasantness there's nothing pleasant about my life anymore at all she says, my life is nothing but bitterness and experience of feeling bitter. She says, for the Almighty, notice, has dealt very bitterly with me. Again, do you take notice where she's kind of at in her heart and mind at this point? What's she doing? She's transferring the blame of all of her experiences over to God. And she's saying, God has dealt bitterly with me. He's given me a bitter lot in my life. And again, we have to always be careful. Sometimes we are a little too quick to instantly, as I said, just jump to conclusions, even with sometimes always wanting to transfer blame over to God for everything. Sometimes events and circumstances and things happen in life, and, and it's not necessarily an issue of that God is, is kind of zeroing us out or you know or or focusing in on us saying oh i just can't wait to i just mom i man i've been waiting to make him miserable i just, I'm, I, I, i've been waiting to just bring some tragedy and, and 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 to think that that's the nature of god is a very distorted perspective of a father 
Which of that would ever do that to one of our own children? God, the Bible says, is incredibly good and gracious and generous. He says, Jesus said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? If your son asks for an egg, Jesus says, you don't give him a scorpion. I mean, that's not the nature of a parent. And God, the Bible says, every good and perfect gift comes down from above. God is a loving Father. It doesn't mean he doesn't discipline or allow us to be corrected at times. But the nature of God is not to bring misery and pain and suffering in our life. We have to remember some of the pain and suffering and tragedy and listen, sickness and cancer and death and disease and people that we love dying and tragedies and crises that happen. We need to realize some of this is just a direct result of the Garden of Eden. We live in a fallen world. And when sin entered the world, death and sin and sickness and suffering entered into this world with it. And some of these are just the natural, normal experiences of life. It's not just God trying to purposely go after making somebody miserable or bitter. That's not the nature of the heart of God. Sometimes the truth of the matter is too, our own poor choices sometimes. We bring bitterness into our own lives and we have to be careful that we don't bring bitterness into our own life as maybe we're reaping the consequences of some of our decisions and then we, we want to flip it over and blame God. The, the Lord Almighty, he's, he's made me bitter. He's brought bitterness into my life. We have to be careful of that and thinking the wrong way about the Lord. But this again, this shows you the transparency. I appreciate the Holy Spirit's honesty, the transparency. This is how she feels. That the hand of the Lord is against her. She says, don't call me pleasantness. She says, I'm bitter. My life's become bitter. The Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. Again, at least she knows that she has a sense too that God's sovereign over all things, but she's struggling. She says, verse 21, I went out full and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? I think it's interesting. Notice verse 21. She makes this statement. Think about it. I went out full 10 years ago when there was a famine in the land and we were starving and had nothing to eat. I went out full, but the Lord 10 years later now has brought me home again, she says, empty. Uh, let me point this out to you. Certainly her belly wasn't full 10 years ago. So what does she mean when she says, I went out full and now I've come home empty? Well, the fullness apparently that she saw in her life was God and her family. That was a full life to her. Ten years ago, she said, I was full. We didn't have much money. We didn't have two pennies to rub together. We didn't know where our next meal was coming from. We didn't have the best circumstances materially. But she said, but you know what? We had God and we had family and we had our marriage and our children. And she says, that was fullness. And, and let me just say as an application for us, ladies and gentlemen, that's a full life. That's a full life. Don't overlook that you may have a really full life because a spirit of discontentment comes over you. And let me say this. I assure you, I could probably line up for you 10 people who may not still have that fullness in their life and they would say to you, listen, you could give me multi-millions of dollars and prime rib and the fullest belly in the world and what I have because I don't have my wife or my husband or my children anymore that is way more empty. And they would gladly testify to us that what fullness really is and what fullness is not. She says, I went out full, 
but I've come home again empty. So Naomi returned, verse 22, and Ruth, the Moabitess with her, they came back into town, who returned from the country of Moab. And notice verse 22, important as it closes. Now they came to Bethlehem. They arrived back at the beginning of the barley harvest. Let me say this. Please hear me before we wrap up and close our study out because this is important to where we go next week and really to what we've seen tonight. As they come back home, you can tell by the reading and the circumstances, circumstances seemed hopeless. It seemed impossible. It seemed that nothing good was going to come out of this. Little did she know that God was soon going to unfold a marvelous work of grace on her behalf and he was going to return all that sorrow into incredible joy in a very short period of time. Because even though decisions had been made and maybe her husband made a poor decision to go there, listen, it could be some of what Naomi's grieving about a little bit too is, again, we don't know. I, I'm just speculating here. Maybe it was a little bit of her idea that they should get over there to Moab because the grass looks greener over there and what are you going to keep us here and make us starve and, and what, what do you, we need to provide for our family. And, we, and, and maybe she's a little bit in her own heart, in hindsight, feeling a little grieved with herself and thinking, oh my goodness, and, and I brought some of this upon us. We should have never went to Moab. And again, despite all the decisions and events and circumstances, the Lord was not just overruling, but he was superintending over all these events. And even while 10 years had passed and lapsed and all that was going on and all the decisions and events, and now God brings them back right at the beginning of the barley harvest, which is important, we'll see next week, and God is now setting the stage, and God is going to begin to work through this man that Ruth bumps into out in a field named Boaz, and God is going to begin to orchestrate this incredible plan, listen, of restoration and blessing and bringing joy and redeeming back and restoring back incredible things that have been lost. And it is just a good reminder, and it will be a testimony to this, God is never out of options. Don't ever forget that. Whether it's some of our own poor choices, whether it's just tragic events or, or calamities that come into a life or a family or a crisis that happens and events and this and that and it's been 10 years and it looks so bleak and so impossible and so discouraging and, and it seems just life is bitter. Listen, God is never out of options. He's never out of options. And it may not be even the option that you're calculating that it should be. Because if you were God, this is what the option would be to fix your bitterness. But God's not out of options. He knows what's best. He knows what we need. He knows how to restore. He knows how to give joy back in the midst. The Bible says that sorrow may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And God is able to do that because of his providence and superintending. So tonight, maybe it looks like, oh no, but listen, God's still working. I don't know how he's working, but ultimately we see in the story he is still working and he's the same God for you and I today. Let's stand, let's pray together. And let's turn our hearts, great thing we can do, to the Lord in worship. Take our focus off of this world perhaps and reflect upon who he is and let him bring joy and refreshment to our spirits as we focus upon him. Lord, thank you.